We're here to continue as I've been preaching through Luke chapter 15. And this is a, one of the more, uh, how would you say, just outstanding, exciting chapters of the Bible that has to do with salvation and Jesus coming to bring sinners to repentance. In the setting, Jesus came and he was accused of, not only was he eating with sinners, he hosted them, he welcomed them, it says in the Greek. So he welcomed sinners and tax gatherers, and the Pharisees grumbled, as we saw last week. And the grumbling is the same word that was used in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, for the wilderness wanderers who grumbled about what God was doing. So we have in the Old Testament God bringing salvation by taking Israel out of Egypt and bringing them to himself at Sinai and providing them manna, and they grumble. And now we have Jesus, the greater Moses, the Son of God, fully human and fully God, coming under the scene of history to bring and provide salvation, and the leaders of Israel grumble like their forefathers did. Because they had a different idea than Jesus did about righteousness. They felt that this was something that you earned through law-keeping and keeping yourself pure and keeping yourself separate. And that you don't eat with sinners because when you eat with someone, you convert honor to them and you imply fellowship. So if Jesus was really from God as he claimed to be, why is he eating with sinners, Satan's people? We think Jesus is from Satan. So because of their grumbling, Jesus gave them three parables to answer why he is eating with sinners. First one was the parable of the lost sheep, 99 left behind to find the lost one. Then the lost coin, nine are safe, one is lost. And now today we come to the lost sons. And whether you understood this or not, you will by the end of next week, there are two lost sons. In this case, the man has two sons, he's lost both of them. Howbeit, in different manners. I want to show you a couple books here that I rely on very heavily for this study. The first one, Poet and Peasant, has nearly 60 pages just on Luke 15. It's a scholarly book and it's written for scholars and so it contains lots of footnotes and discussions of issues, but it's still absolutely excellent. And then a more popular book in the sense of easier for anybody to read is a book called The Cross and the Prodigal. Kenneth Bailey spent most of his life living in the Middle East in, among villages with peasants. And the customs of the Middle East have not changed in these little villages since the time of Jesus. And so he's able to shed a lot of light on um, what's going on. And so I'm, I'm indebted to his work, and including this next slide. This slide here shows how uh, in the first part of the prodigal son, the, the son that runs away, there is an inverted parallelism. You can see I, I use colors to show what compares, uh, corresponds to what. So he's lost, then there's waste, then everything's lost, then great sin and total rejection, and then in the middle, which is the emphatic part of such a construction, you have a change of mind and an initial repentance, and then 5-1 acceptance is parallel, only opposite of five, from rejection to acceptance. 
then you have sin, turns to repentance, you go back up, three, everything lost, everything gained, two, goods wasted, goods used in, in celebration, a son is lost, a son is found. That amazing construction that Luke used uh, to write this parable out for us, and so it's instructive where the parallels lie. So now, having that in mind, let's get into this. I've got a lot to cover. I am excited about it. <laughs> this, this is just amazing. This Sunday, I have put most of my notes into the slides because I was afraid I might forget something. And uh, we'll see if that helps you follow it better as well. Here's what happens. Luke 15, 11, 12. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Now, the two sons, as we'll find out in a moment, are both not really having a love relationship with their father. But this request that the younger one makes for a share of the wealth, he doesn't ask for inheritance, it's a different Greek word, the word here is usia, only here in verse 13 in the New Testament, and this has to do with uh, the stuff. I want the wealth. An inheritance would require him to accept responsibility. If you have inheritance, you're responsible for the family wealth. You're responsible to guard it. You're responsible to multiply it by making good stewardship of whatever is part of the family that's come down over the generations of inheritance. But he just wants wealth. He wants stuff. And it says he divided his wealth, but the state was the first word, usius, and then the wealth here is bios, life. So this kid wants to take life from his father. And uh, the older son does not ask for or get the right of disposition. There were two different things that had to do with inheritance at that time, and then I'll go on through the slide and explain some cultural things. You could, you could be uh, assigned a portion of an estate while the father is still living, but you did not have the right of disposition. That was still in the living father's control. In other words, he is going to had the final say, you can't just go sell stuff off of this estate while he's still alive. This, this younger son didn't want this. He wanted everything, and he wanted the right of disposition. I want it, and I want to be able to get rid of it and do whatever I want with it. This request is absolutely unheard of. This request is wicked. This re- request is so disgraceful and dishonorable that Kenneth Bailey, um, in his books that I showed you, said that he went through the Middle East for years and years and years from all different countries in the Middle East, various peasant villages, and he asked every time, everywhere he went, he knows about every language you can imagine, he says, have you ever heard of somebody asking for their share of the family wealth while the father was still living? And the answer was always, never. Never. And he kept asking, kept asking, and finally he found one case where somebody had heard of somebody even asking for it. Nobody would even ask for it. And there was a Jewish Christian who was a doctor whose son asked for his share of the wealth so he could go off with it. And a few months later, the man died. And his wife said he really died when his son made that request. It killed him. Because the request is saying, Father, I want you dead. And I can't wait that long. 
That's what this guy does. Now here's some cultural considerations. When there was such an inheritance in, in Jewish law, the older receives two-thirds, the younger one-third. As I just said, asking, even asking for the inheritance was unheard of and utterly and horribly disgraceful. Wicked is what it is. Assignment of shares did not include the right of disposition, as I said, but that only happened when the father died. Asking for the right of disposition was the equivalent of saying, Father, I cannot wait for you to die. Now this is in an honor-shame society. This is in an honor-shame society where the elder, elder person always has the honor. Elders are honored in their world. Uh, Bailey said there's a saying that says this, one day older, one year wiser. Yes, the older you were, the more honor you had and the more respected you are. When uh, the synagogue that we previously shared this building with wanted to have a meeting with our elders to discuss something, who did they bring to the meeting? The oldest person in their congregation. Now why would you bring the oldest person to a meeting? Because he's the most honored person, and by bringing him, they show us that they think we're important. They brought their most honored person. America doesn't really honor the elderly, so we don't understand this. We should, but we, we don't, unfortunately. And so the father has all the, the gravity, the gravitas, the, the, the dignity. He's, he's everything. And to, to disgracefully dishonor the elderly, your own father was a breach of every kind of cultural uh, law and mori that they had in their society. The father's expected reaction to such a request was to be outraged and punish the boy. Bailey eventually found another person who had heard of it happening in an, amongst an Arab family, and, and one of the sons asked for his share of the wealth while the father was alive, and the father beat him and kicked, threw him out of the house. <laughs> you don't do that. So he should have just, in their world, been outraged, slapped him, punished him. And the whole village would have been outraged. The request shamed the family throughout the village and totally disrespects the accumulated wealth and status of the family in the, in the village. He's, throwing, he's just throwing to the wind the family's name, their honor, their status, and generations of hard work to prevail within the clan in the peasant village. But unexpectedly and unheard of, the father grants possession and disposition. Let me give you a theological implication. God allows the sinner to go his own way and reject God's love. Because we'll find out that the father in this family, in the parable, stands for God in Christ coming to reconcile sinners. And so when the sinner says, I don't want to serve God, I don't want to obey the Bible. I don't want to listen. God will allow you, the sinner, to go sin however you see fit. The only restraint on how much sin you can do if you choose to run away from God is what the civil authorities bring to you. You could end up in jail. But God will allow you to go. Theological implication. There's more. 
The older brother is lost too. How do we know that? Well, for one thing, he says silently and doesn't stand up to defend his father's honor. It's his obligation as the oldest son to defend the honor of his father above everything else. That's his job in that village. That's his job in that family. He does not defend the father's honor. He sits there silently. It was the older brother's obligation to act as a reconciler between the father and the younger son. He does no such thing. Whenever there's a dispute in the Middle East... There has to be a reconciler because someone has to get between the two parties so that neither one of them has to lose honor or be disgraced. We're going to find out in this story who's willing to be disgraced. But in this case, the older brother just doesn't do his job. There's more. By granting the request, the father actually gains shame. This father is willing to take the one thing nobody wanted. The, the worst thing to ever have if you live in a Middle East peasant village, the worst thing that could ever happen to you is to have shame. Because they lived in a shame-honor culture. This father willingly allows himself to be shamed because the village will think that he dishonored himself by granting the request. And then... Finally, both sons failed to even try to live together in unity, which is something required in Tanakh, which is a serious breach of the family's honor within the village. You stand up for the honor of your own family. Would to God we, do, we would do that today. The prodigal son. What does prodigal mean? Prodigal is an old English term that means wasteful or spendthrift. Wasteful. And so, as we read this, uh, let's see what he did. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey into a distant country, and there squandered his usia, estate, with loose living. Asotos, meaning wastefully. It doesn't say exactly how he squandered it, it's just wastefully. Now, because it says not many days later, now selling property, so the this, this state would consist with property, goods, livestock, and what have you, uh, sales took a long time. And he didn't want to wait. He couldn't wait to get away from his father. And so he had to have a fire sale. He had to have sell this stuff way undervalued to turn it into money. And uh, gathered together, in the Greek implies, turned everything into cash. So he took... Uh, very little uh, of the value he should have got because he just had to get rid of it at any cost. Because he, why? Was, what was the emergency? He had to get away from his family. He couldn't stand to be there anymore. So he turns it all into cash, goes to a distant country, a Gentile one, as we'll find out, and squandered it, squandered it wastefully. Um, how would he have squandered it? Yeah, I have some more uh, considerations here. And, well, the fire sale, I mentioned that. Generations to accumulate by the family, liquidated. He sold his birthright, in a sense. Broke relationship with his family. He broke relationship with the extended clan that lived in the peasant village. He got out of town as fast as he could and as far as possible. The word uh, for in the Greek to travel away from your home country. And the, the, the scattered, everything was just scattered, squandered, wastefully, loose living. 
Bailey says, we don't know. See, the older son said he spent the money on harlots. But the older son is not necessarily a reliable witness in the parable. See, in Luke X, you know who's a reliable witness based on who they are, their character, if the Holy Spirit came upon them, and so on. So in my opinion, had Luke, or Jesus in his parable, and Luke as he writes it, wanted us to believe that he actually did spend it on harlots, he would not put it in the mouth of the older brother who didn't really even know what happened. That's how I interpret it. But I'm disagreeing with others like John MacArthur, and so you can decide for yourself what's the best reading. A lot of prepare, a lot of theology, by the way, is reading evidence for different readings, looking at the Greek, laying it out there, and not everybody agrees, but it's the job of the preacher to determine what's the best reading. That's my job, and I, I believe the best reading is just leaving it as it is, loose living, and not necessarily believing the older brother, and we'll see why he's not necessarily believable. Now, uh, Bailey says, here's what a t- typical Mid- Middle Eastern uh, person would do in a situation like that. In fact, he calls this extravagant li- living. I'm going to quote Bailey, um, the cross and the prodigal. If the prodigal is a traditional Middle Eastern vi- villager, his pattern of behavior can be understood and reconstructed. The money is used primarily to establish a reputation for genera- generosity. He holds large banquets, gives out expensive gifts, Generosity is a supreme virtue coveted by all. The opportunity to gain status in the eyes of new friends through an exercise of this virtue would be the highest kind of pleasure for such an individual. But he eats the fruit of the tree that he's left unwatered to die. He squanders his capital. And if if Bailey's right, and this is just a possible reconstruction, you live in a shame-honor society, and honor is a more important virtue than anything else. It's a more important commodity than anything else. It's even more important than life. People would rather die honorably than to live in shame. It's even more important money. Now, money is a good thing because it can buy you honor. But the honor itself is the ultimate value. So how are you going to use your money to turn it into honor? You go to be, you know, throw the feast. How do you get new friends in a foreign country? Be this guy comes into town with all this money, having parties, feasts, and then trying to gain status. But it's all gone. And then it's not good. I think that might be right. I can't prove that one. That was Bailey's idea. But I think it might explain why later it says nobody was giving anything to him. It didn't work. If that's what he did. If that's what he did. Whatever the case, he wasted a whole lifetime's worth of accumulation foolishly and wastefully. Verse 14. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So the foolish son doesn't know the difference between capital and income. How many of you know what happens when you spend your capital? Don't answer that. Unfortunately, too many of us do in the world that we live in today because we've seen our capital go away without even making any decisions about it. But the Lord's with us. But he spent everything. You spend your capital, that's it. You don't have any way to make an investment. You don't have any way to find some more money or to do something or to start a business or anything. So he spent it all. A severe famine occurred in that country. They began to be impoverished. 
The word spent everything means to waste or squander to no benefit. So whatever he did with it, he got nothing out of whatever he paid. And then this word here, uh, severe, means powerful, a powerful famine. A powerful famine in such a region at that time was an unspeakable horror. Um, in Bailey's book, The Cross and the Particle, he has a, 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 a telling of such a famine by someone who lived through one and wrote about it, and it's very graphic, but it was horrible. It was so horrible, it's unimaginable. Dead bodies uh, being drug around and, and so on and so forth. It's just awful. And so this is a very, very bad thing to have a powerful famine and have no money and be in a foreign country and have no friends and have no family and have no clan and have no extended village. You are lost. Nowhere to go. Losing family money? I'm going to talk you, t- tell you about this Kazaza ceremony. Again, from Bailey. If someone lost the family money to Gentiles, the rabbis talk about this in, in, back in the first century, if you lose the family money to Gentiles, then when you come back, you can expect a kazaza ceremony. What's the kazaza ceremony? They fake, uh, there's a couple different ways they did it, but I'll talk about the one with the jar. They go into the middle of the village out in the street and all the clan, remember the peasant village is extended clan, everybody knows everybody, everybody knows everything, nothing ever gets said or done that everybody doesn't immediately know about. And they take the, they take the, the jar and they tell what the guy did, so and so lost the family estate to Gentiles. And they smash the jar into pieces and kazaza mean cutting off. Therefore, he's cut off. And what that means is that he's no longer allowed in fellowship in this entire clan. Go. You're going to have to go do something else. You're cut off. What you did was too bad. And so he's got that to face if he decides to go back because now he lost his money to Gentiles. Wow. And then the unspeakable horror of a famine. And I won't go into the details, but... That book, The Cross of the Prodigal, has an interesting account of one such thing. Let's go to verse 15. He then, then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. I suppose you already realize the irony here. This is a Jewish boy. He wanted to live in his Jewish village with his Jewish father and his Jewish brother and his Jewish clan, And so he goes to a far country, wastes all his money with Gentiles in some way. Maybe the older brother's right. Maybe it was riotous living. Maybe Bailey's reconstruction is right. But whatever he did, he he lost it. And the guy's going to send him to feed swine. Now, there's more going on here than what meets the eye. And I have some more cultural considerations. Joined in the Greek, kalao, means glued. And why, how, do, how was it he glued himself to a citizen? Well, the citizen didn't want him. He just couldn't get rid of the guy. Okay? He, he got there and, and got a hold of this guy, and he wouldn't, wouldn't let go. I'm going to read something again from Bailey that illustrates how this happens even to this day. He's seen this happen. This practice persists to this day. In a crowded city center, you park your car, a man appears from the teeming swarms in the street. He opens your door, 
and begins to furiously to polish your already clean windshield. He grabs any bag out of your hand and follows you into the store. All efforts to shake him are futile. He picks up your purchase from the counter and returns with, the, with you to the car. He expects, of course, to be paid handsomely for his loyal and faithful service. He's glued himself to you. <laughs> and you get, the only way to get rid of him is to pay him. Okay, go, here. Diane had that happen in Barbados. <laughs> and, uh, and it's like, well, what's going on here? So this, this Jewish prodigal glues himself to this guy, a citizen in this other country, and so the guy has to try to get rid of him. How am I going to get rid of this beggar? I know, this kid is Jewish. I'll send him to feed the swine, and he'll refuse to do it, and I'll be rid of him. Uh-huh, that's what's going on. Here's some uh, detail of what I've been talking about. Forced himself on a citizen. Thought he was going to get rid of him. If he had any honor left, he'd refuse. What honor do you have left? You've shamed your family, shamed your village, shamed God, shamed your belief as a Jew. You've wasted your money to Gentiles. You've faced the Kazaza ceremony if you decide to go home. Glued yourself like a beggar to a Gentile. Certainly you're not going to go further down this road of dishonor and feed swine. As bad as it is, he's not yet willing to go home. At home he would face scorn, ridicule, disgrace, and having lost his share of the father's estate to Gentiles, the Kazaza ceremony. And so, looking at two bad alternatives, go home to shame, reproach, and he would have to just pay his dues. It would be awful. And they cut him off, and he'd have to try to live somewhere else and see what he could do. Yeah, the pigs aren't so bad. So he decides to go that route. See if we can't find one possible last chance to survive here. Luke 15, 16. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. Now, longing there in the Greek is epithumia. It's the word for lust. He had, he was so desperate, he was so... Uh, badly lacking food, he lusted to have dinner with the pigs, to eat the pods. Now, there's a lot of discussion among the scholars about what kind of pod this was, and it's pretty well agreed it was the carob. And in his earlier work, Poet and Peasant, Bailey had a big long section describing two different kinds of carob, one that had pods that had a certain amount of sweetness to them that, could be, that were actually ate by the poor, and you could boil them and get the sweetness out of them, and they had some food value. And then there was another kind of wild carob that was really uh, something a person would hardly eat. And they would be on a bush, and the hogs would ravage through the bushes to get those little wild carob of beans or whatever they were. And another possibility is that these had already been processed. If you boil those, you can make kind of a tea out of it. And what the pigs were getting was what's left over after the humans cooked out whatever good there was. 
So whatever it was, it wasn't anything good. And according to Bailey, it's not something that he could have actually lived on. And he's longing, he's lusting. Now, why can't he get any is what the, well, we don't know. Why can't he get any? If he's the one feeding them, why don't he just eat it himself and not give it to them? Well, maybe it wasn't edible. Um, I'll tell you one thing. When you're around hungry pigs, you don't try to get into the fray with them. I tell you the truth. I, I grew up on a pig farm, and one of the things I did uh, when I was a teenager was the neighbors would hire me when they went on vacation to go over and do their chores. Because it's real hard to go on vacation when you're a farmer because you always got these animals to take care of. And one neighbor who was actually a relative of ours was known for being stingy. He was the stingiest man in the county. In fact, he used to go to the dump and get bald tires and put them on his car and drive them until they were threadbare and then he'd go get more bald ones. I never once seen tires of tread on his car. Well, he had these sows and he fed them sow chunks, which are big, hard pellets, and he'd get buckets of them, but he didn't want to feed them very much. He was saving money on food for the hogs. So he strictly said, do not give them more than two buckets full. And so there's these hungry sows, big ones, and I'd come with the bucket, and they'd just see me opening the door to the shed where I got this, and they'd go nuts. They were biting at each other's ears. They were climbing up on the fence, and they are just, literally, if you fell in there, they would have killed you. And so I was, I had my bucket, and these pigs are after me. And so I'd run down to the other end, dump it over there, and they'd all go <laughs> piling up on each other and squealing and fighting to try to get some. And then I'd take the other bucket and put it at the other place and get out of there. If you fell in, you'd be dead. So imagine this guy wants to try to get into the fray, see if he can get what the pigs are eating. Not easily done. So this is terrible. So I, I put on a slide here something, a thought. This was my thought. I see the irony here. He had table fellowship with his father. His father wasn't in any bad straits. He had everything that he needed. And he broke fellowship with his father and now contemplates breaking bread with pigs. He has hit the bottom. Here's how badly disgraced. In a shame honor society, being disgraced is the ultimate horror. Here's where, what kind of condition he's in. He disgraced himself by asking for his inheritance. He disgraced himself more by selling it on the cheap to get money and leave the village. He disgraced himself by squandering money to Gentiles. He disgraced himself by becoming a beggar among Gentiles. And he disgraced himself by feeding swine and actually wishing to eat with them. As unclean and horrible and disgraceful as it can be. As I said earlier, if you don't want to serve God, if you don't want to listen to the Bible, you want to be a sinner, God will allow you to go do whatever you want. You are free to choose what sin you want to commit. You're free to choose how much you want to sin. And the only negative is if you get some sort of a bad consequences or you end up in jail. Oh yeah, then you go to hell too. That's the other one. <laughs> but you're free. God will let you go. Now we start to get to the center part of that inverse parallelism. We start to come back. We try, we're, we're gonna, the story is going to turn the corner now. It turns the corner. It says that when he came to his senses, literally in the Greek he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired men 
have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. Now, a hired man would be a day laborer, someone who wasn't a part of the household, a servant. He didn't even dare ask to be a servant because that would put him in the household. And he knows, he goes back, he gets the kazaza. And that's, that's bad, the broken thing in the street. And he'd have to maybe just come in and with, uh, do a daily job or something because he couldn't be allowed into fellowship. And so he couldn't even expect the status of the servant is higher than the status of the hired worker. The servant had everything that he needed. Okay, so a hired worker was independent from the household. Now possibly he could um, find someone to train him into a trade where he could actually make more money. And he begins to think that something needs to change. So come to his senses, a sort of an initial uh, uh, movement toward repentance. And then there's this initial repentance. But I want to have to talk to you about this. Luke 15, 18 and 19. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Now he has a plan. What's his plan? Why would he want to be a hired man? Well, for one thing, he doesn't want to eat the pig's food and starve and die and what have you. He has these out of options. And this would be the kind of repentance. Now remember, Jesus' audience is, is the Pharisees. He's preaching this to the Pharisees. They're the ones listening to him. And so far, the Pharisees are thinking, what? No father, what? This is outrageous. Nobody would do this. No father would do this. This is so bad. And the Pharisees, now hearing this, would think, okay, now this is better. This is, this is what we, we would want to see. This is the Pharisees' idea of how repentance works. The Pharisees' understanding of repentance is that you go back, take all the shame you deserve, and start working your way back. Pay back, work, show yourself to be honorable, show that you've changed, and if you work long enough, hard enough, and you show enough change, we might let you back in. Okay? So they would accept this. This is, this is decent. Okay, well, I'll try to make some money, and I'll, tell, I'll admit that my, I've sinned against heaven. The, literally, in the Greek, it said they sinned into heaven, and um, most scholars think that what it means is a circumlocution for God. I sinned against God. But uh, MacArthur thinks that the, the uh, into, ice, went into would indicate my sins are as piled as high as heaven. But whatever the case, he admits he's a sinner. He admits he's not to be, going to be worthy to be called a son, and he has a plan to make things right. As I said, that would be in keeping with rabbinic ideas. He's willing to work as a laborer to pay off what he wasted. Bailey says he does not yet understand the nature of his sin. He thinks the issue is money, but it isn't. It's the Father's broken heart. Breaking the heart of his loving, gracious Father was far worse sin than losing the money. And I can tell you that this Father wanted his son back. He wasn't like an ordinary father. An ordinary father would have been done with this. Punished him, excommunicated him, thrown him out of the village, and just started grieving. Have a funeral, start grieving. Because then you can get over it. It's not the first time somebody's son died. That's how they would do it. But this is a different father. He's not an ordinary father. He's a father that never stops longing for, seeking, and loving his son. 
We're going to see this by his actions. But he doesn't even realize yet how great his sin really is. Bailey says reparations and atonement were made by the act of repentance. That's how you repent. You make reparation and atonement. They didn't have the idea fully developed within their, their rabbinic communities of how grace works. The prodigal intends to do what he has to do in order to make up for the money he lost. But what about his family? Well, that's the big problem. His idea about how to survive and perhaps repay shows he has not yet realized his greatest sin was rejecting his father's love. The biggest problem that he cannot solve is the mockery, the taunts, the abject humiliation, and possibly kazaza, and it will come from the entire village. He's going to have to go through that village running a gauntlet of cruel mockery because the village clan is as one, and they are as outraged at what this guy did as his father would be under ordinary circumstances. And he can't solve that problem, so he's thinking, I'll just take it. I'll take my medicine. I'll just go back into the village and I'll sit there and I'll let them mock me and spit on me and shame me because I deserve it. And then if my father will let me work as a day laborer, I'll start working, find somewhere to live, try to pay it back. Maybe at least I'll have food, at least I'll live, at least I won't die with the pigs. Now we have the exciting and unbelievable thing that is grace unknown outside of Jesus Christ. Luke 15 and verse 20. And he rose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The father had never given up in his hope to be reconciled to his son. Rather than seeking revenge, the father suffered in pain, the broken relationship, and he suffered in hope, and he suffered in love, and he chose to continue to bear the pain rather than to get rid of it by having a funeral service and cutting him off. Compassion there is splagizomai, and it means, may I say it, guts, innards, the inner person. In the Middle East, they felt that the inner person was the seat of the emotions. It was the deepest part in the person. And the compassion arose from deep within the father. Compassion and love for this wayward son. Compassion for one who had shamed him. And he arose and came to his father. But the father did not let him get inside the city alone. He ran. The word for run is treko, term from the races. He raced. He raced out to find him before he even got into the town, before he had to go through the gauntlet. And he kissed him. The word in the Greek implies again and again. The father takes the action, and the son's never even made his speech. The son hasn't said anything. He hasn't said yet, I've sinned against heaven. He hasn't said yet, I'm not worthy to be your son. All he's done is show up at the outskirts of the city. And the father runs to him. Do you know that the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost? Did you know that God seeks reconciliation to sinners? And do you know that your sin cannot be possibly have been bad enough 
that Christ won't come and bring you to himself if you realize that you're lost and that you need him. Bailey calls this a visible demonstration of costly love. Now let's talk about some of the cultural considerations. The father ran out to the boy. It's considered humiliating and undignified for a Middle East nobleman to run. This would not happen. The, the Middle East nobleman has a big flowing robe and his legs do not show. If you run, your legs show. It's disgraceful. It's humiliating. And, and you can quote Bailey uh, line after line and telling examples of this. It was an ultimate disgrace to do that. You walk in a slow, noble gait to show your status as a nobleman in the village. This would be utterly disgraceful. And so the father disgraces himself running through the village to meet him out on the edge so that the son doesn't have to be disgraced by the village as he runs the gaunt, walks the gauntlet on, the gauntlet on the way back in to be humiliated. Bailey says this, I quote him directly, the father then runs this gauntlet for him, assuming a humiliating posture in the process. The father searched for the son like the shepherd for the sheep earlier in Luke 15 and the woman for the coin earlier in Luke 15. The public embrace and kiss of the son showed total, unexpected, unconditioned, get that, unconditioned grace, unconditioned grace. This is what the Pharisees did not understand. This is why they grumbled. This is why they said, why are you doing this? Why are you bringing tax gatherers to your banquet? And Jesus said, I did not come for the righteous, but to bring the sinners to repentance. They couldn't understand. What's unconditioned grace? They have to do something to straighten themselves out first, and then maybe we'll think about eating with them at some point. Unconditioned grace, mercy, and acceptance. The son had done nothing. The only thing the son did was he realized he was lost. Do you know what you need to do to be saved? First thing you need to do is realize you're lost. And the older son was more lost than the younger one. Because he didn't know he was lost. But he was just as lost. We'll see that next week. The father fell on his neck, kissing him, thus presenting the son, seeing his father, would have either kissed his hand or feet. So the father brings him into fellowship. The kiss is a sign of reconciliation or forgiveness. The father bore the public shame so his son would be spared. And now that the nobleman has reconciled unilaterally with his son, the village can't do much about it. What are they going to do? They can't start, they, they'd have to try to humiliate the father even more. They, they have to accept the fact that there's a reconciliation that's happened. So he spared the son the public shame. In every turn in this story, the father takes shame to spare his son from it. Wow. Jesus was eating with sinners, taking shame from the community for doing so in order that he might restore the honor of messianic salvation on the sinners and make them sons and daughters. That's what the gospel is all about, dear brothers and sisters. Now look what happens. 
Luke 15, 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against, again, into ice, into heaven, and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But notice, he didn't finish his speech. Not because he was interrupted. Because he didn't need to. Had he said, make me your hired man, that would be shameful at this point because he's already reconciled as a son. Now he realizes that this is just pure grace. There's no works to be done. It's just to admit that you're an unworthy sinner and you're not worthy and that you have sinned. Bailey says what he does is he accepts being found. He accepts being found. He realized he was lost. What's the difference between those tax gatherers and sinners eating with Jesus and the Pharisees? The difference is the tax gatherers and sinners knew they were lost and they knew they needed a Savior and the Pharisees thought they were found when actually they were lost and far from the Savior. Cultural considerations, and then we'll go to some apps. By leaving, make me one of your hired men out of his speech, the son showed a transformed understanding of repentance. Wasn't going to work and pay off his own debt. He now knows that reconciliation is an unmerited gift from his father. He knows that assuming that he could pay his father back for what he had done would be an insult now that his father had done it all. His father had done it all. What are you going to pay God for your salvation? Nothing. The repentance of the prodigal. The father's gracious actions will be picked up next week. I'm going to stop here with these repentance because it will break out better time-wise. There's more to what happens here, but it feeds into the next part because the next week we're going to talk about the older son and see what his lost condition was like. But um, after acknowledging his sin, the only thing he says is, I'm unworthy. I hope we all know that. We are not worthy. We're not worthy for God to do one single thing for us. Everything he's done for us is all of his grace and his love and his mercy. He understands the father's pain for his rejected love. See, uh, young people, when you rebel against your parents, when you rebel and run off like this kid did, what you're doing is forgetting the love that your parents have for you. And I see many a rebellious teenager who doesn't even give an inkling of a thought to how much pain he or she's putting their parents through. They don't even think about it. They're only thinking like this prodigal, what can I do and where can I do it and how far away from home can I do it? Why go away from home? Because then you don't have to be shamed by everybody seeing what you're doing. But the real sin is a breach of the relationship that God gave you. But here, in this case, the father's paying for rejected love. That's what's going on with all the sinners in the world. They're rejecting the love of God that was revealed in the person of Christ, who loved the world. His repentance comes from realizing he was lost, and he gives up the hired man idea because he knows the father has conferred full sonship. Full sonship, honor, status, and as we'll see next week, the signet ring, the shoes, the robe, the robe of honor, and everything that anybody could have ever had. 
He ended up more, with more than he would have ever had had he just been a normal son and waited it all out. Wow, how can God give so much grace and mercy to unworthy wretches? I don't know, but I'm glad he does. <laughs> just two ap- applications and implications here. And they're, I'm only doing two. There, there's certainly many, and I mentioned some during the sermon. I'm only doing two because the profundity of this is seen in the uh, fact that the Father is God in Christ coming to reconcile sinners. And the profundity of it is found in the shame-honor situation. And that's what we're going to look at. Christ endures shame in order to make us honored sons and daughters. Outside of God's grace, we are all either prodigals or Pharisees. Well, you could ask, well, what kind of sinner are you? Are you the, the obvious wicked sinner or are you the self-righteous sinner sitting in church? Or are you a sinner saved by grace? <laughs> That's the kind to be. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. We've been having a great study of that that we were doing on the radio. And we've been over this verse here already on the radio. Hebrews 2, 10 and 11. For it was fitting, very interesting, an important word, it was fitting for him for whom we are, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. The Father in the parable was God in Christ reconciling sinners to himself. So, if you can get your head around the idea of the shame-honor society, the shame-honor world that they lived in, and that honor was everything and shame was to be avoided at all costs, then this is unbelievable. That he, Jesus Christ, the King of glory, the pre-existent one, the one to whom all honor is due, came into this world and suffered shamefully so that he could take us dishonorable sinners, call us his brothers, meaning we're in his family now with full inheritance, and bring us to glory. Can we emphasize the gospel too much? I don't think so, because we know from Revelation we're singing about it in heaven. We're singing about how, how the Lamb bought for himself a people from throughout the earth. So we gain an inheritance that we do not deserve because he laid aside his divine privileges and came and lived in this world, incarnate, lived as one who was shamed and mocked and ridiculed, ultimately died a shameful death on the cross where they mocked and ridiculed him. He himself took all of the shame, just like the father and the prodigal son took all the shame, in order to bestow sonship to us. That's the glory of the gospel, dear brothers and sisters. Hebrews 12, 2. Now remember, earlier in Luke 15, we were talking about the joy of God. There's no more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who need no repentance. 
And we said those 99 do not exist, by the way. Um, so there's joy in heaven over the repentance of a sinner. There's always a rejoicing going on in heaven as one by one by one sinners are brought into the kingdom of God. And ultimately there's an eternal party of rejoicing, a messianic banquet. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. There's that key word again. There's our word shame. Christ bore horrible shame. He bore the shame of all the sins that are committed. He bore the shame for sins that are not his sins. Sin is a very shameful thing, and he bore it all for us who had lived utterly shameful lives. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It doesn't say what the joy set before him is here, but if we can borrow our theology from Luke 15, we see the joy would be in bringing the many sons to glory, as we saw earlier, and having this banquet of a messianic rejoicing with the redeemed, the sons that he bought out of this wicked world. God's joy is over one sinner who repents. Maybe you need to listen to this today. Maybe there's some here today who haven't yet realized your lost condition. You haven't come to the conclusion that you're lost. You think you can make your own way. Maybe you think you can do it through being religious like the Pharisees or being worldly like the prodigal, but just going to make your own way in life. And the fact that God's a loving God who sent a Savior into the world to die for sins doesn't even weigh on your mind. You don't even think about it. But maybe today the Holy Spirit has convicted you, pricked your heart like in Acts 2. Maybe you realize that this is me. I'm the prodigal. I'm the Pharisee. I'm the lost sinner. I am lost. And maybe today you'd be willing to give up your idea that you're going to solve the problem. That you're going to become a hired man and pay off your own debt. Give it up. Just give it up. And realize that all you can do to repent is confess that you're lost and unworthy and be willing to come to God who reconciles himself with sinners. Today, I plead with you, be reconciled to God. Come to God and enjoy the joy of heaven with the Father whose joy is great at finding the lost. One more point, which just dovetails into what I was just saying. We're all one of these, a prodigal or a Pharisee, something in between. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, But he was pierced through for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we were healed, all of us, all of us, how many? All. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He took it on himself. He took it on himself. He ran the gauntlet of shame through the village so that we could become honored sons before we ever got there and took the scorn and ridicule. He bore the shame on the cross so that we could have glory in heaven. And I don't think we can fully understand this in this world because we're still living 
as sinners. If we're saved, we're sinners saved by grace. But I think in heaven it will all become clear and we'll understand how we can rejoice for all eternity about it. I believe it will be more amazing than we've even imagined. So as we conclude, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to cause his word to penetrate deeply into our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this magnificent story of grace and mercy and love and joy and repentance. The glories of, of the gospel. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that we're even allowed to look in on this and participate at all and be able to see your wisdom. Thank you, Lord, that you took the blinders off of our eyes so that we could see these truths. Lord, if there's any here who have not yet repented, I pray that your Holy Spirit today would convict them deep in their hearts and that they would be reconciled to you, the loving Father. And we thank you and we give you the glory and the praises in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. And have a wonderful rest of your Sunday. Spend some time fellowshipping with one another too.